Welcome to Failing Forward. Today we're talking to Isadora Key about rapid gender analysis and what we've learned about embracing the culture of imperfection. Thank you so much for joining us on Failing Forward. Can you introduce yourself for the audience? Hello, Emily. My name is Isadora Key and I'm the Global Lead on Gender and Emergences and I work at the Secretariat. And why is it important for us to talk about failure? Failure in the humanitarian context is built in. If you think about some of our names of our guides and how we work, you'll think, find things like um, the good enough guide. You'll find things like top tips for things you have to do and all the things you don't. So I'd say that in the humanitarian space, uh, failure is just a given and something we have to live with and manage. Tell us a little bit about the context of your example for today. Today's example comes from some work I was doing. It's actually my very first deployment with CARE, actually. And I was deployed to work in CARE's recently-ish opened office in Gaziantep and Antakya uh, in Turkey on the border with Syria. It was a very difficult situation where we were very much looking very remotely into Syria and unable to go there. And obviously, as everybody knows, I think, um, very sadly, listening to this recording, Syria remains one of the world's largest emergencies. And, and the year the story starts is 2013. So we're still at the beginning-ish of that crisis. What went wrong? I still work on gender and emergencies. I, I did then too. And I was asked to go and think about how to do a gender analysis inside Syria. And at this point, there was no gender analysis. Um, nobody has any, and all of the data that's coming out at this point is um, sex and age blind. There's no sex discriminated data, there's no age-related data, nobody has anything, and every single assessment report I'm reading is like, it's just too hard, we can't get it. So there was a really urgent need for some gender analysis about what was happening inside Syria, and I was tasked with figuring out how to do that. I was working with a series of local partners to, to try and figure out how to do gender analysis from a distance in a country I couldn't visit, uh, with people who had never done a gender analysis and who had never had any previous experience as humanitarians. And to make it even harder, every week I had a new person working with me. So every week a new face would come in and say, I'm, I'm your gender focal point, I'm here to work with you. And every week another person would come in. And so it was just extremely difficult to, to think about how to make this happen in, in that context. So what did you do? So what happened was we got real simple real quickly. So I was sitting there, if you can imagine, I had the care, the first uh, version of the care emergency toolkit open and I had a very long list of questions, all the questions that uh, you should ask and find out in a gender analysis. So things like, how do you as a family divide your resources? Who controls decision-making in your household? How much daily labor do you spend on housework versus reproductive tasks? Who controls the money? Those kinds of questions. So it was written, if I could describe it, all the questions were written in gender ease. And unless you were already a gender person, it didn't really make much sense. It, these weren't questions you could just pick up and run and take into a community and just say to, to some random person. In fact, I'll ask you, Emily. Emily, how did your parents control their resources? I actually have no idea. That was something we never talked about at our house. And I think a lot of people would feel the same way, right? These are, these are important questions, we get it, but figuring out how to ask them is, is a bit of an art form. And in a lot of the tools and the resources we had in the past, the art form was left in the hands of gender specialists who knew how to translate these into, into, into English or into, into a more common parlance, in this case, in Arabic. And so these poor gender advisors or gender focal point would keep coming back to me and they'd be like, I, yeah, I don't know how to even ask these questions. And so I realized pretty quickly we needed to move from really technical language and very guidance level, like you should look at these issues, to figuring out a way more step by step about how do you actually do this in practice. And when I looked around, there was no guidance on how do you do this in practice? How do you actually do a gender analysis step by step? 
And so I set about creating rapid gender analysis, which is guidance on how do you actually do each step of a gender analysis during a humanitarian emergency. So what would you say of the key learning from that? Key learnings from the rapid gender analysis toolkit are definitely act fast. People don't really have a ton of time to do the assessments and there's a huge and, and real need for real information in real time. So, so speed is of the essence. Only way we figured out to do that was to, to embrace imperfection. And so the second and probably most important principle of rapid gender analysis as it is today, but even back then was kind of accepting your imperfections, accepting that failure was going to have to be part of this toolkit. Uh, and this new way of working. And that was a really difficult issue for a lot of gender people to work with because they're used to doing really good work and asking everyone to do imperfect work, work that would be by many standards considered a failure because it doesn't triangulate data or it's overly reliant on one kind of uh, one source or it's, it's not statistically representative. There are so many ways that the rapid gender analysis toolkit has to be imperfect because if it doesn't, then you'll, you'll just get completely stilled by the epic task in front of you and nothing will ever happen. It's the third learning that came out of that was getting practical. So again, you could have really great gender analysis sometimes coming out of crisis situations, but unless you interpreted it for people, that's, it would just stay on the shelf and it would be this perfect gender analysis that nobody would ever read or use. What are some of the skills that you have to work on with other people when you're training them to do this? I'm going to come back to imperfection. Imperfection is probably the number one skill I train people in, which sounds like a really funny thing, right? I'm a technical gender specialist and I'm telling everyone to embrace imperfection. <laughs> but, but it's the truth, really helping people to let go of their expectations of what their work should look like and accepting that sometimes good enough really is better than nothing at all. And I know that sounds so trite and so ridiculous, but it's absolutely the truth. It's better to start getting information out there as soon as possible about the likely challenges people are facing than for them to be operating completely in the dark with no knowledge about gender and social norms, um, which is the alternative in many cases. I do a lot of work on monitoring and evaluation and on learning and on research, and we see a lot of the same things, that we're afraid to talk about something because it might not be perfect, that at some point somebody's going to come back and challenge our sample size or our methodology, so maybe we shouldn't say anything. What are some of the tools you use or approaches you use to help people get past that? The first is, is literally, like it's written in big letters on all of the G RGA rapid gender analysis, what we do is that it's imperfect. So it's, it's usually the second paragraph and then like quite explained in the methods section, it's like we label it as imperfect. We also talk about rapid gender analysis as being fundamentally imperfect, that we have to build in imperfection. And the idea that the only way to do a gender analysis that that we can come up with is that you start with what you have, you identify your gaps and you encourage others to fill them. And where you can, you start working on it, but you don't stop. You don't not share just because it's not right. Because in the, in the case of the work we do, lives depend on it. I think those two things, I think being really clear to, to label what you know and you don't know, certainly for a lot of the specialists I work with, that, that helps them to feel a little bit less fear. The second point would definitely be about putting that principle right at the heart of our training, at our approach, our gender analysis framework. It, it's all over it, that idea of imperfection and the idea that you can, and there is a legitimacy to, to building up gender analysis progressively, and it's okay. I think is, is probably the second one, making it part of it. And I guess the third one would be within our team, like creating a culture of imperfection, which sounds really bad, but actually it's really important by being myself very imperfect and by encouraging everyone else to bring their imperfections into the space. We create a team environment where it's okay not to always be right because it's for the greater good and, and it's better that way. It just takes some of the pressure off. As you mentioned, you know, in the humanitarian work, lives depend on it. And one of the things I see is we have this tendency to split humanitarian and development and say, well, yeah, okay, in humanitarian spaces, lives depend on it. 
I would argue that in development spaces, live depends on it too, but maybe a little slower. So how can we take some of that thinking into a space where there might be a little less urgency, where maybe if it takes you two weeks instead of one week, it won't be the end of the world. But if it takes you a year instead of two weeks, it will be. Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's a lot of overlap. So the way we designed the rapid gender analysis toolkit is actually based on the gen good practice um, gender analysis framework that the gender justice team developed many years ago. And so if you actually look at the substantive heart of it, it's based on development practice. And what's really interesting to me is that we've seen more and more because rapid gender analysis is really step by step and really clearly explain how you do all of these steps we see people more and more using it in the development space, especially those who, are, who have not done already 100 uh, gender analyses, that they can take the principles of rapid gender analysis and see, oh, I see how they do these steps. And then they can make them more sophisticated or more robust if they have more time. So it's, it's really interesting to me to see the, this kind of backwards and forwards where we're learning from the development space and bringing that, some of that learning into the humanitarian space, albeit massively simplified, just because that's the nature of what we have to do. And then it's going back into the development space and, and becoming its own thing. And I think in that way, we kind of live the continuum. So if you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently? So many things. So rapid gender analysis has never been externally evaluated. Drives me nuts. <laughs> I just wrote a journal article basically proclaiming the need to ex ex uh, externally evaluate rapid gender analysis. So I would find some way, maybe, maybe there's some free way I never thought about to actually get rapid gender analysis evaluated. I'm humbled by the fact that it has been used in more than 60 countries. I'm aware that in 2011, there was no gender analysis in any humanitarian emergencies that Tufts could find. They did a meta-analysis and couldn't find any. So I know it's a gap and I know we've come so far. It still sometimes wakes me up in the middle of the night that we've never actually externally evaluated whether this is actually the right approach. Not just for care, but for the sector, because it's actually been adopted by the sector. And genuinely, that freaks me out. I, I'm somebody who believes in evaluation. I believe in studying things. That's why I'm so passionate about gender analysis. And I would deeply, deeply love for someone to actually evaluate whether we're doing this right and, and how we could do it better. I would have the toolkit translated. It was done very much with the spirit of volunteerism. So that was really nice. We had a huge amount of graduate volunteers. Shout out to all of the graduate volunteers who were part of the rapid gender analysis volunteer crew working on this. So that was great. Finding some way to pay everybody for their time would have been nice. Had a lot of people like volunteering their weekends to work on this, which is lovely and a real can-do spirit. But I, I still feel a bit guilty about that. Yeah, I'd probably go back and rewrite all of the rapid gender analysis reports, which I originally wrote. I read my own reports. I'm like, why did you not think to go and do a validation workshop? What's wrong with you? How did it take you a year to figure out that, you know, having local gender specialists review all your work really made sense? Two things I hear you say there, though, that are really important lessons are about doing validation workshops with local people and having locals read the analysis and the recommendation and give you feedback. How do you do that in a really short time frame? We're just actually figuring this out for the Bahamas. It can be done. So it, it basically, paying attention to something from the beginning helps you to do that. So I'll give two examples of how we're doing those two different things. So right now in the Bahamas, they're, they're looking at doing a rapid gender analysis report for care. Actually, um, I went through the shadow CEDAW reporting to figure out who some of the gender activists were in the Bahamas. Obviously, the Bahamas are the Bahamas. It's in the Caribbean. It's, it's a beautiful place. And, but, you know, they have gender equality issues too there, as does everywhere. And so going through the CEDAW reporting, the shadow reporting helped kind of point out some of who the right people could be to talk to. So I'd say that once you know that you're looking for um, some local gender specialists, you can find them. They're there. You just have to know you need to look for them. And then with the validation workshops, I mean, what we do with something like the Women Lead model, it kind of is rapid gender analysis mark two. So we 
do the rapid gender analysis work, um, both the secondary and the primary, and then we actually take the findings, not written, but the actual substance of the findings and kind of do consultations and discussions with women's groups. One of the things that blows me away is that in pretty much every emergency I've worked in, and every, you know, be it natural disaster or conflict zone, there are women's groups coming together and, and men's groups too in solidarity and just hanging out and being together. So if you can tap into those existing collectives and groups, you've got a ready-made audience to kind of discuss what you're finding and, and they will tell you if you're, you're on the right track or not. So it can be done. How do you think about using the lessons from this failure and this tough experience to improve impact across the organization? I think the culture of imperfection is one I would really encourage. Um, so it, it's beyond failing forward. It's, it's actually thinking about how do, we, how do we embrace imperfection into what we do? How do we get more honest about when we are being imperfect? And how do we ask other people to help us? So I wonder, thinking about evaluation writ large, if, if working some of that, that culture of imperfection that we've learned in the gender and emergencies team and that comes from the spirit of the humanitarian world in many ways, and, and building that into some of our evaluation work. I think it's gonna be a really uncomfortable journey though. I think it was a very uncomfortable journey for our gender advisors to, get, to go through and it continues to be. A lot of people remain very uncomfortable with you know, publishing things that they know might not be accurate. And yes, absolutely, we sometimes get feedback like that's wrong. And we have to just kind of go, yes, it's wrong. We will change it for the next one. Getting comfortable with that for our impact and evaluation teams, I, I think that would be an interesting journey to go on. And of course, you know, there's the added burden of impact evaluation is, is often about research and is often done by people who are professional researchers. And I get I guess they on some level would, would hold it even more deeply, not just because of the harm they could do, but also because of the professional risk of, of them publishing things that are incorrect, even if they've labeled them as such. I know. What do you think? It's one of the things I think about a lot, that there are some people who are really willing to embrace this and really excited about it, but there are often cultures of that being really threatening and it being really scary to say anything, remain silent and be thought a fool or open your mouth and remove all doubt, right? And that, that sometimes it's just easier to not say anything or not put anything out there. For me, one of the things is about creating spaces to correct and creating a dialogue and a conversation so you're not only saying one thing and it's the only thing you will say for the next year it is part of a conversation and so sometimes you will misspeak or something will come out and it's not exactly perfect and then you take the correction and the feedback and move forward it's really important for leaders at all levels to embrace that with their team i guess the idea that it's not one shot right i mean it's, it's built into rapid gender analysis that you're going to be doing this over time so the idea is you publish something in the first well something is available within 24 hours something is available within a week something is available six weeks later so it's not your only time to speak it's not your only time to make a point that's going to be there's space to, to correct this. It's, it, it's scary, but at least you have, op you know that you have options to, to, to make it better if you have made a mistake um, rather than it's a single evaluation and it's the only one. So yeah, I think that sense of progressiveness can also help people feel more comfortable with it too. Any last words or thoughts you want to share? I mean, I, I would say embracing imperfection is, is really um, a nice principle to live by. I think it helps my team who do incredible work in tough places um, to yeah, just feel a little bit less pressure. They already put so much pressure on themselves and they already feel such a great sense of responsibility and they do such a great job. So if we can make life a little bit easier for, for them and for everybody in care who's working so hard to, to make it feel a little bit less risky to be wrong, then I think that's a good thing. Thanks so much for joining us on Failing Forward. Tune in next time to hear more examples of what we're learning from what doesn't go right.